2: I'm going to do something a bit different and I'm going to basically be devil's advocate and do my best to explain to you guys why I believe my conclusions are reasonable and not all that far-fetched after all. I've got some great feedback about this series as well so I hope I'll have your guys' patience because as you can see this episode is a bit longer than we normally do but hey, it's necessary I think in the long run so... If you haven't listened to any other episodes in the Korean War before, you're definitely not gonna know what's going on here. So before you jump to conclusions, before you jump into this episode, make sure you listen to the earlier episodes first. Already? Great. I will now take you to, well, this episode. Welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 21. Last time we concluded our three-part look at the Korean element of the war and how affairs on the peninsula changed and crystallised according to the worsening Russo-American relationship across the world. We're almost ready to cover the outbreak of the war from several angles, but before we do that wanted to present you guys with something different. Many of you guys have asked me about my theories on the war and how I can stick by them considering the consensus out there regarding how and why the Korean War began. Well, this episode is for you and for anyone else interested in the historiography of the era. The most unconvincing parts of the conventional explanations for the outbreak of the Korean War can be summarised into two points. One, Why did the Americans repeatedly ignore the warnings of their sources when talking of South Korea's vulnerable state in the months before the war? And two, why did the Soviet delegate in the United Nations miss out not on one but two attempts to halt the provision of aid and support to the South Korean government when this went seemingly against the Soviet Union's public policy goals? These are the two questions I'll attempt to answer using the information I have at my fingertips, and the answers may well surprise you. Remember guys, I'm not a conspiracy theory hack, I'm just a guy with a different opinion based on what I've read and learned over the last few months. My hope is that you'll give me a chance here, just like you did for the July Crisis Anniversary Project on the 1916 miniseries. Sometimes histories like those are easier to hear when it's not talking about your actual country, and I am aware that some of you who have objected to this version of events object to it mostly because it paints America in a less than favourable light. But surely you all know by now that history is not black and white. There might have been sneaky countries, evil countries, not very nice countries and things everywhere in between, but history is rarely a case of black and white. So anyway, enough dallying, I will now take you to the eve of the Korean War. The song of the week this week is brought to you by the book that I'm writing on the 30 years war. This book will be out in November 2018. So if you're listening to this series when it's after November, then hey, my book is already out. You should go and order it. If, in fact, you were listening to it in the months of April and May, though, then oh boy, I've got some good news for you. All you have to do is sign up to the newsletter, which is, of course, absolutely free and you'll be able to get a code that will get you 20% off that book. If you do that, then you will make me very happy, you'll save yourself some money, and you'll be landing yourself our latest book. Of course, I should remind you guys that patrons who are supporting us at the $20 level a month or higher, and incredibly enough, there are some of those out there, you guys will get those books signed anyway, so do not go and buy them, unless you're trying to be really nice or you're getting it as a present for someone. Anyway, if you would like to order that book yourself, if you would like to sign up for the newsletter, all the links, as always, are in the show notes down below. Simply scroll down and click on those links, and if the links don't work, then tell me, or copy the links and then follow them. You know what to do, guys. You know what to do by now. In any case, I should also say that the Song of the Week is brought to you by the History Podcasting Platform. Last week, we were visited by the very nice Noah Tesner, and I hope you checked out his History of the Vikings podcast if you were wondering who else has gotten in contact with When Diplomacy Fells, with yours truly about getting some help in the land of history podcasting, then I would like to introduce you to a Mr. Devon Field, who runs the Human Circus podcast. What is the Human Circus podcast? Well, before I even explain it to you, let me just play this clip. This is Devon, the host of Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World. With Human Circus, I follow medieval travelers, whether they be envoys, merchants, soldiers, or friars, tell their stories, and talk about their world. I recently reached out to Zach because I had questions about history-based storytelling, and with five years of history podcasting experience and his new history podcasting platform, he was the perfect person to go to for help. Right now, I'm working on a series on the travels of Marco Polo. You can find it and me at HumanCircusPodcast.com The song of the week this week is Lonesome Road Blues released in 1924 a very catchy jingle if I do say so myself and it's by the Blue Ridge duo enjoy it guys and we'll be back with episode 21 of the Korean War
1: I'm going where the chilly wind never blows. I'm going where the chilly wind never blows. oh, I'm going where the chilly wind never blows.
2: By 1949, American attentions were focused on bigger and better things. Berlin, the East-West European Divide, China, Japan, and even Vietnam, Korea was but one of many theatres where the West confronted communism, and the alternative theatres appeared, at least in early 1949, to be far more important. The establishment of the Korean military advisory group, KMAG, in autumn 1948, had ensured a functioning American military interest remained in place in the Republic of Korea, but exactly how this interest was defined, nobody seemed to know. Assurances to the effect that the Americans would support the government of Syngman Rhee were taken on board gratefully by the sexagenarian president, but they had to be consistently juxtaposed with what Rhee was being told by his men on the ground. Throughout 1949, Syngman Rhee had several conversations with Ambassador Mucho regarding the frequent border raids conducted by the North Korean People's Army, whereupon Mucho always reinforced the official line that the Republic of Korea's armed forces were sufficiently supported to handle the dangers. The chronic underfunding of Rhee's military was based initially in a disinterest in the Korean theatre and in the belief that there were more important theatres that were more deserving of American attention and resources. Of course, after the secret adoption of NSC-68 in spring 1950, this drip-feeding became deliberate, and South Korea was quite literally unplugged from any American support. By that point, neither Ambassador Mucho nor the chief of the Korean Military Advisory Group General Roberts, could hide their concern. And it was becoming evident that Rhee's government was in danger. And yet, Washington continued to do next to nothing to shore it up, preferring instead to chastise Rhee for his regime's economic instability and repressive policies. We've seen this course of events transpire over the last few episodes, and we've seen ambassadors travel from this capital to that in search of answers and aid. All the while at the top levels of washington the unofficial policy line was to use south korea as bait and to guard this policy by alluding to nsc 8-2 the report drawn up by the national security council in late 1948 which set forth the american policy with regard to south korea's defense if one was in the know in the state department they were given the additional excuse that washington feared Rees intentions and that to provide him with a wealth of supplies and force would enable him to launch an invasion of the North. This additional excuse is often interpreted misleadingly as a genuine fear in Washington, and for one historian in particular, it was of particular importance when he tried to argue that ridiculous point, that the South invaded first in June 1950, and that the invasion, the overwhelming Northern invasion which followed, was merely a counter-attack launched by Kim Il Sung. Neither the Secretary of State Dean Acheson nor President Truman acknowledged the chronic problems and shortages and strategic vulnerability to their subordinates, preferring instead to scramble external contingency plans in response to the evident danger that the North Korean People's Army posed to the south in the form of large T-34 tank brigades, preparing large task forces, mobilising portions of the navy and retaining old fighters and jet fighters on Japan were all American responses to the genuine danger that a massive North Korean blitzkrieg posed. While the policy had been to make South Korea vulnerable, if Seoul was too weak, its regime could be pushed into the sea before any Allied forces had a chance to intervene. This would prevent Washington from intervening alongside its allies in the United Nations, it would prevent Truman portraying the North Korean attack as an unprovoked, unforeseen and unprecedented act of military aggression. But most importantly of all, it would prevent the Truman administration from making use of this conflict to beef up its military defence budget, equipping the United States with the arsenal it would need to fight against communism around the world. In the reluctant, somewhat isolationist Congress, where several bills had been passed in defence of the Europeans against communism, a certain weariness could set in within a few years if the dangers of communism were not exposed. In the past, the Marshall Plan had been helped pass through into law, amidst news of the Prague Coup in Czechoslovakia, where the Soviets seemed to threaten a push further east against the lawfully elected democratic governments of Europe. Now, Truman was looking for another, even more effective Prague Coup, except this one would not lead to economic explosions, but to military ones. On the other side... Stalin wanted the Korean War to go ahead because it would serve him with an invaluable gift in world affairs, not just the distraction of the Western allies in some Asian backwater, but also the alienation of the People's Republic of China from those same allies, once Mao Zedong felt compelled to intervene for the sake of Chinese security. We haven't yet examined the portion of the narrative where I go into the next stage of Stalin's plan, the part where he deliberately jeopardised the invasion of the South, by Kim Il-sung's forces in the bid to ensure that Kim couldn't definitively win the war, and that it would instead degenerate into a costly quagmire for all involved. When we do reach that point in our coverage, you'll be able to judge for yourselves whether the failure of the North to achieve victory can be put down to Allied resilience or to other explanations. In addition, you'll also be able to See just how dependent upon the Soviet Union Kim Il-sung actually was, to the point that he altered his own invasion plans and diverted key units from certain assaults after being told to do so by Stalin. As we've certainly established by now, there was a lot going on during the Korean War. The Korean War itself was a conflict whose importance cannot be understated. A quick look at the news today will tell you that the legacy of the conflict remains strong never out of the news for long, folks, thanks to the unnatural situation which this conflict created on the peninsula. In addition, the Americans used the Korean War as a springboard to fund their wars against the Northern Vietnamese and to present themselves as the arsenal of democracy against the Soviets. And I'm not saying that as a criticism, I'm just saying that as, well, as something that appears to me to be quite sensible and realistic policy. Stalin's intention to alienate the Chinese from the United States and to drag America into a costly war was successful, but it didn't have the results that Stalin bargained for. Above all, Stalin underestimated the economic capabilities of the United States, and he underestimated their ability to make use of the Korean War as a conflict to expand their financial capacity rather than seriously undermine it. The war didn't exhaust or destroy American military or economic reserves, Instead, it led to their expansion, justified it was said by the grave threat which communism now posed to the world. The result which Washington unofficially hoped for did in fact pan out, and the more than fourfold increase in the defense budget from fifteen to seventy billion dollars surely stunned Soviet observers as much as it surprised certain American economists who, at one point, had declared that America's national debt could not possibly grow any further. Indeed, the economic strength of the United States was the sword that ended up landing the killer blow to the USSR during the Cold War, and I would argue that this sword was sharpened during the course of the Korean War. Since nobody sharpens their sword by accident, I would argue that this analogy makes still more sense in the context of my argument. Acheson, Truman, and several other informed officials in the administration recognized that the confrontation with the Soviet Union. Between democracy and communism, could only be won through an incomprehensibly vast expansion of America's economic power. If Washington was concerned about communist encroachment in Korea, it was also genuinely concerned about the situation in China and the challenges that the People's Republic posed to the strategic position of American interests in the Asian theatre. Furthermore, the recent establishment of NATO, the arguments in favour of West German rearmament and the necessity in building a hydrogen bomb strategy all pointed towards having a stronger and larger economic capacity than ever before. Maintaining democracy in the free world was always going to be expensive and if not Washington, then who else was in a position to pay? One of the greatest problems I have with the idea that the Korean War was not planned, either by the Soviets or the Americans, was that it makes both of them look like absolute fools. To begin with, how is it possible that the most extensively funded intelligence network in the world, and by that I mean the American, did not know of the North Korean attack? We know that from the communications passed from Seoul to Washington, that Acheson did receive these cables, so he must have known that the strategic situation in South Korea was deteriorating in spring 1950, even as he did nothing to change that state of affairs. If Washington really was as caught out as the historical consensus supposes, then either Acheson really wasn't doing his job and wasn't reading these things that he said he was reading, or the support intended for South Korea never arrived. Yet we know from the archives of the State Department that Dean Acheson did get the messages, and since it was his job, it is a sure thing that he read them. So what could be the reason for his inaction, other than he was deliberately pursuing a policy of inaction? One such cable sent from Seoul to Washington was that sent by Singman Ree on the 8th of March 1950. Within that memo, the beleaguered president wrote, The enemy in the North can sweep down on us at any moment with more arms, more planes, more of everything than we can muster against them. We have no anti-aircraft guns, no planes, not even ammunition, spare parts or the other things which are necessary to keep the machinery operating. We're not after a large army, a large air force or a large anything. We only want to obtain forces in each branch of the military service which will be adequate for our defence. How could such a stark, desperate warning possibly slip under the State Department's radar? As we have seen, Rhee was far from the only figure to make such noise. We should remember that between late April and mid-May 1950, the American ambassador to South Korea, John J. Mucho, actually travelled to Washington to make the case for greater American support of Rhee's government, as the danger to that regime from the North was becoming increasingly clear. General Lynn Roberts of KMAG, even resigned his command in protest at the unworkable situation, no doubt aghast that his repeated requests for increased investment in the region had been ignored time and again, and even in the Asian theatre, a member of MacArthur's staff in Tokyo remarked on the situation. Charles Willoughby was the name of MacArthur's intelligence chief, and he filled out over 1,000 reports between 1949-50, right up to the moment that the war broke out and he sent them to Washington, but he received no response. Even more incredible, one historian noted that the CIA collected, at great expense, detailed data on the North Korean People's Army and forwarded this information on to Washington. The historian Bong Lee in his book The Unfinished War noted that Charles Willoughby even thought that there was a conspiracy in Washington to ignore all such information. Adding that, there was a disconnect between the CIA field office and the CIA HQ in Washington, D.C. Indeed, in several accounts of the Korean War, the given reason for why America didn't act when an attack on South Korea seemed imminent appears far less convincing than the conclusions which may otherwise be passed off as some kind of conspiracy. The important thing, as we've seen, is to have an open mind about the whole situation. However, let's look at one such example of the conventional reasoning for why, in light of the information received by the State Department on South Korea, Washington did not act. For example, in Max Hastings' book on the Korean War, which most enthusiasts would normally turn to, Hastings presents the reason for the State Department's inaction as a difficulty, as he put it, in distinguishing signals from noise In other words, Hastings argues that, thanks to the contradictory evidence consistently sent to Acheson and the Truman administration, neither the Secretary of State nor the President felt in a position to act either way with much confidence. There was simply too much going on, Hastings seems to argue, for the US government to pay much attention to the South Koreans. This argument would hold more water if South Korea's troubles hadn't been loudly underlined by its many American potentates over the six-month period between January and June 1950. In addition, Hastings doesn't even mention the visit of Ambassador Mucho to Washington in the weeks before the war, and he also fails to explain why General Roberts should leave his command at the Korean Military Advisory Group in mid-June. Furthermore, Hastings also ignores the build-up of Chinese forces at around the same time as Mao Zedong sought desperately to beat Stalin to the punch and invade Taiwan before the trigger on the Korean War could be pulled. Unless the Sino-Soviet dealings are properly understood and placed in their context, none of what follows actually makes sense. In addition, by presenting Kim Il-sung as anything more than a puppet or vehicle for Stalin's policy, we give that dictator far too much credit. I find it especially unbelievable when some narratives present Kim as somehow persuading Stalin and Mao as to the worthiness of his cause. Neither Stalin nor Mao Zedong would have done anything in Korea unless it was for their benefit. Considering as well the fact that Kim was so utterly dependent upon Soviet supplies, training and advisers, it is a great leap into fantasy to try and paint a picture where, as they say, the tail wagged the dog. In 1975, the historian Robert Simmons presented an argument which was something of a halfway house between acknowledging the Soviet supremacy in Korean decision-making, but reasoning that Kim had marched ahead of his orders. Simmons wrote that, Although the Russians certainly armed the North Koreans and did expect a war, the timing of the war, which was primarily a civil conflict, can be best understood in terms of the indigenous conditions on the Korean peninsula. His timing, Simmons maintains, was caused by intense intra-Korean workers' party rivalry in the North, combined with appeals from South Korean-based guerrillas who had powerful supporters in the North. These pressures forced Kim Il-sung into a war date earlier than the one which he and his Soviet mentors had probably agreed upon. Unfortunately for Simmons, his research was conducted before the release of a whole raft of revealing documents, including those that dealt with the implications of NSC 68. Any documentation relating to such information was made available to the public in 1978, 25 years after the Korean War had ended. While it wouldn't be quite fair to portray any works on the Korean War written before 1978 as obsolete, certainly Simmons and many other authors do suffer from the lack of answers to pertinent questions, which greatly hampered their ability to make sense of the period. Indeed, this gap of 25 years is immensely important for how the historical consensus around the Korean War developed. Any narrative or analysis which was published after 1978 would have two choices, to examine the new materials and draw their own conclusions, or to adopt the same conclusions as before, with some minor adaptions perhaps, and to focus on other issues within the war period, such as the battles being waged, the struggle between Truman and MacArthur, or the peace talks. In such a way, I believe, was the common consensus handed down and recycled from year to year. The book which really spurred me on to question this consensus was Richard C. Thornton's Odd Man Out, which was released in 2000. Max Hastings' book was first released in 1986, To most people, Hastings' more well-known book is the definitive record on how the Korean War came to be and how it progressed. Yet, even while I very much enjoyed Hastings' book, and while I feel it is very much worth your time, I feel that the lack of engagement with the then newly available sources reduces his ability to draw effective conclusions. Oddly enough, Hastings does note the existence of NSC-68, just as he notes that its contents remained secret for over 20 years. In fact, Hastings actually gives a very detailed and useful definition of what NSC-68 did and what it meant to American foreign policy. He said, The Joint State Defense Study Group, which produced the critical study of American foreign policy objectives, NSC-68, in the first months of 1950, urged greater defense expenditure. It defined the Soviet purpose as, the complete subversion or forcible destruction of the machinery of government and structure of society in the non-Soviet world, and their replacement by an apparatus and structure subservient to and controlled by the Kremlin. Two of America's most prominent experts on the Soviets opposed the NSC's paper. They argued that Moscow was, in reality, far more cautious than the documents suggested, but Atchison accepted NSC 68. Its principal conclusion that the Soviets should be challenged wherever in the world they next embarked on assault on freedom, became part of the policy of the Truman administration. Note some key points here about NSC 68. We know that the Truman administration did adopt it in the spring, and that even from late January 1950, America's leaders had moved towards a policy of confrontation against the Soviet bloc. One of the points that Thornton's thesis underlines, but by no means hinges upon, is the possibility that the United States had broken the communist codes, and had thus been able to crack the cable sent from Stalin to Kim Il-sung, which denoted the Soviet leader's approval for a strike on South Korea. There remains no evidence that these codes were indeed cracked, but it remains a remarkable coincidence that within a day of this communication being sent, the American president approved the controversial hydrogen bomb testing, which, up to that point, he had neglected to progress with. Consider also Hastings' comments on what NSC-68 was to the United States' foreign policy. The idea that the Soviets should be challenged everywhere in the world, that they presented a new challenge to the democratic West, forms the nucleus of the containment policy that the Korean War inculcated. Hastings also notes that NSC-68 had its critics, who didn't believe the Soviets to be as active as the report claimed. One of these men was George Kennan, America's foreign policy adviser and expert on the Soviet Union. Kennan had written the report on Soviet policy entitled The Sources of Soviet Conduct in 1947, wherein he noted that Moscow's actions on the world stage were based in weakness rather than strength. Hastings notes that in spite of Kennan's informed observations, NSC-68 became the policy of the Truman administration. He even noted that Acheson accepted NSC-68. Acheson indeed was arguably the prime mover behind this new foreign policy course, firmly supported by the mostly unassuming president. I find it bizarre that Hastings notes all these points, from the adoption of NSC-68 by the administration to Acheson's acceptance of its core principles, yet he then fails to consider it when examining American foreign policy. Indeed, because of his failure to factor NSC-68 into his conclusions, Hastings actually fails to land that killer blow to connect those dots, which I feel Thornton did most convincingly. It's only when we're armed with the evidence that points to a willful American neglect of South Korea that other parts in the historical record begin to reveal themselves. If the American inaction was an unplanned act of wanton ignorance, which most historians argue it was, then it is easy to understand how all other misconceptions regarding the war became formed. Without NSC 68, We don't grasp the context of the Sino-Soviet alliance, nor do we appreciate what this meant to American policymakers. Without the Asian context, the war becomes a smaller affair in terms of its impact upon the Soviet Union and the Chinese. Some narratives of the war treat the Chinese as a suspicious bystander to the whole conflict, while Hastings at least gets it right when he notes that the Chinese, the overwhelming probability suggests, were passive, if acquiescent, parties to North Korea's intentions. Unfortunately, while Hastings notes the Chinese innocence, he doesn't go far enough and he fails to explain the true reason for Mao's inaction, thanks to the fact that his book barely mentions Taiwan or underlines its importance to China. The tortured negotiations between Mao and Stalin over the weeks which followed the outbreak of the Korean War reinforced the notion that Mao wanted nothing to do with the Korean War, not because of a general disinterest with Korea, but because of his own occupation with Taiwan and with finishing his civil war against Chiang Kai-shek. These are issues we'll examine in episodes 32 and 33, when Mao Zedong's reaction to the Korean War comes under our microscope. On the other side of the fence, Stalin pushed Kim to make war, and pressured him consistently, out of fear that Mao would in fact strike Taiwan first, defeat the Nationalists, remove the major obstacle to Sino-American relations, and thus reduce the dependence of Mao upon the Soviet Union. Both men were racing to accomplish their major foreign policy goal first, and both knew the impact it would have on the other should they succeed. Thus if we fail to account for NSC 68, we also fail to properly analyse the relationship between Stalin and Mao, and we then miss a great deal of the context in which the Korean War took place. Indeed, to my mind, everything just doesn't make sense if we don't assume that all viewed the Korean War as the worst kept secret in world affairs by summer 1950. Think, for instance, of the other great mystery in the conventional explanation of the Korean War's outbreak, the tale of the Soviet delegate to the United Nations Security Council, Jacob Malik. Jacob Malik says the consensus refused to take his seat in the U.N. Security Council as a protest against the refusal of those present to allow the People's Republic of China to have a seat at the Security Council instead of the Republic of China. This explains why the Soviets boycotted the institution, and because of this development, the U.N. Security Council were able to pass their two resolutions on the 25th and 27th of June, and thereafter ensure that the joint action in Korea took place. Hastings presents the Soviet absence on the UN Security Council as something akin to a miracle, a fluke of history, as he called it, which enabled the historic condemnation of the North Korean action to go ahead. To another historian, the absence of the Soviets at such a critical time demonstrated that they didn't have a hand in the outbreak of the Korean War, and that Kim's invasion had taken Moscow by surprise. Yet, all of these perspectives hide what is... By far the most straightforward explanation. Jacob Malik was absent from the UN Security Council's meetings because Stalin had told him to be absent. Stalin had told him to be absent because Stalin wanted the punitive UN action to proceed. Only this way could the Allies invade, the North Koreans be defeated, and the Chinese feel compelled to intervene to save the situation. It was a great stroke of fortune in the case of American foreign policy, of course, because it enabled Dean Acheson's appeal for allied unity seem even more effective. The Soviets, he could claim, were embarrassed by their allies' actions, and would not be so brazen as to support their act of naked aggression. Yet, put all that aside for the moment, and consider the fact that Malik was very much present in the United Nations' buildings. He had merely chosen to stay removed from the Security Council's proceedings. If Stalin had desired it, in other words, Malik could have returned at any time. It wasn't as though he was back in Moscow, far away from events taking place in the UN's halls. One historian noted how Malik was eating lunch with the security general, the American ambassador to the UN, and several other figures in Long Island when the security general moved him to take part in the discussions, which were to culminate in a vote on the resolution on the 27th of June. So, after the first resolution that condemned the invasion on the 25th. If, in the conventional explanation... Malik had somehow missed his chance to block the Allied condemnation of Korea. The first time around, this vote on the 27th of June to render actual assistance to South Korea provided the Soviet delegate with the opportunity to more than redeem himself. Yet, to the relief of the American ambassador to the United Nations, Malik simply stated, No, I will not go. In the episodes to come, we'll see how the Truman administration presented its concerns for Korea, and how at all times the intervention was presented as one which would restore peace, that noble act of collective security known to posterity as a police action. Indeed, we will revisit these conclusions and my reasoning behind them once more in a later episode, when the full extent of the revelations surrounding the outbreak of the war and the moulding of it by both sides becomes clear. I should also emphasize again, guys, this is not an exercise in America bashing. What this whole series represents is a new look at the Korean War, a war which many choose to overlook altogether in favor of the more interesting, gritty developments like Vietnam. The belief that the Korean War is a forgotten war, that it didn't matter all that much in the grand scheme of things, and that it's not an important war to study, these are all myths in their own right that I also want to dispel, and I feel the best way to do that is to ask, why it really mattered, by peeling back the layers which obscure the most interesting truths, and presenting the war as it actually was. The Korean War is worth your time, for no other reason than it supercharged American finances like no other event in history, and that includes the First and Second World Wars. It also led the United States on a path towards confrontation with the Soviets, that ended eventually in the fall of the Berlin Wall. Moscow could never keep pace with Washington, once the defence budget had been so inflated, and no matter how large their armies or pervasive their secret police, the Soviets were never able to match the American economic clout in the way that they needed to. Of course, it suited Soviet propaganda that the Americans should be richer than they were, since decadent, capitalist America was an easy target to attack. Deep down, though, the lure of that same capitalism was always going to strike a chord with the hungry, deprived and greyed-out living standards of the East. Such a battle was destined to be long, though, and the Truman administration accepted that a boost was needed to make it through to the other side. Of course, if you believe my conclusions, then some more questions have to be answered. On the 27th of June 1950, two days after the invasion of South Korea began, President Truman made the following speech to Congress, saying... The attack upon Korea makes it plain beyond all doubt that communism has passed beyond the use of subversion to conquer independent nations and will now use armed invasion and war. The tone of indignation and of surprise which came from other members of the administration will have to be taken with a pinch of salt if we believe that the war was the planned for desired outcome. Indeed, this was one of the most difficult aspects of this thesis for me and I know it's been difficult for you guys too since it logically followed that President Truman, among others, essentially lied to the American public, and to posterity, about the nature of the Korean War for the remainder of their lives. Such a possibility can seem ludicrous. How did the President and those in the upper circle of America's government convince those around them to believe in such a lie, and how did they manage to negotiate the pitfalls of the war so successfully? I did struggle with the idea that President Truman, a figure who I always viewed as a somewhat innocent, gentle president after Roosevelt's fiery performances, would have been so ruthless and conniving. And then the following occurred to me. Which is more believable? That the president should lie, in cooperation with members of his senior staff, or the following scenario? That a man, at the top of his class, an expert in his field and exceedingly well informed of the developments in world affairs, with a world-class department staff to go along with it, should ignore repeated and consistent red flags about a certain danger zone in a given part of the world, that he should spurn the urgent recommendations of men who were well-placed to know the reality of the situation, such as Ambassador Mucho, and that he should maintain all the while that the enemy presented no threat, even when confronted with the reams of evidence to the contrary. If this sounds ludicrous... Then this is what the historical consensus claims the American President and the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, did before the Korean War broke out. Worse, it also claims that it sent Seoul and the rest of the world conflicting signals about the Korean position in terms of the American Defence Strategy. To this day, Richard C. Thornton is the only historian I have seen challenge the idea that Acheson accidentally excluded South Korea from his list of important points of the American defence perimeter in the Pacific. Virtually every other account presents the speech made to the National Press Club on the 12th of January 1950 as careless, a gaffe, or something in between. Such errors have occurred in the historical record because of the historical consensus, which takes Acheson's speech in the way it's reported by the New York Times above all. Yet Acheson performed his speech in a certain way that day. He didn't use a script and he didn't provide the press with a text of what he was about to say. The actual text of what Acheson said was released in the Department of State Bulletin on the 23rd of January. In other words, nearly two weeks after the speech had been made. By then it was old news and the contents had already lit a fire under the media who pointed to all the places that Acheson was abandoning. Yet there was a hidden goal in Acheson's strategy. Acheson's goal with the speech had been to reach out to the Chinese, and the reason why he had spoken ad lib or presented his speech as such was because he wanted to benefit from the different interpretations that the media would print. The New York Times reported that Acheson had big plans for defending Taiwan and had neglected South Korea, both of which were totally incorrect points. Far from neglecting South Korea... Acheson had neglected Taiwan, and the absence of Chiang Kai-shek from the U.S. defence perimeter was covered by the Washington Post. The Washington Post's account could be used as something of a trial balloon to lure Mao Zedong into American negotiations. Yet if anything changed, then Acheson could very easily spurn any response to the Post article by arguing that the reporter on the scene had misheard and thus misreported what had been said. In such a way, Acheson devised a plan to both present several hooks to the listening Chinese and to cover himself if any one of these failed. This was admittedly quite a clever way to manipulate the media and create several different brands of fake news, but it also had consequences because while Acheson expected errors in reporting, some that followed must have made him wince. Think of the New York Times for example. They had spent a great deal of time emphasising the commitment to Taiwan And Atchison never even mentioned Taiwan. He must have wondered where they could have got that from. If Atchison sought to correct the article, though, then one might ask later on why he corrected one report and none of the others. One could, of course, argue that Atchison was sending mixed signals. Yet the Secretary also had the text of what he had said due by the 23rd of January, so he could provide this to the Chinese if all else failed. In the end, we know that Acheson's efforts at luring the Chinese in with these trial balloons were needless because two days after this press meeting on the 12th of January, the Chinese invaded and evicted the consular offices of the marine barracks in Beijing on the 14th of January, which created a diplomatic storm that was emblazoned on the front pages of the newspapers. In Atchison's mind, the cover provided by the inconsistent media reports was now a blessing for his career. He could not be accused of attempting to court the power which had just demonstrated such a flagrant disregard for American rights. And thanks to the disinterest in the affair by the 23rd of January, the whole affair would have blown over and everyone would have forgotten all about his speech to the National Press Club. Instead, though, Atchison would be accused of something far worse than trying to court the Chinese He would be cast as the bumbling fool who gave the green light to the Korean War going ahead by saying that America was not interested in guarding South Korea. This despite the fact, of course, that Acheson had included South Korea within his defence perimeter and he even had described the notion that Washington would leave South Korea defenceless as utter defeatism and utter madness, but such was the consequences of Acheson's ad-lib strategy. The image of Acheson as the bumbling fool on the 12th of January fits logically in with the fact that he then missed the alarm bells in the months and weeks before the outbreak of the war. I don't know about you, but if my Secretary of State was this bad at his job, I would have fired him long before his term in office expired. If Acheson really had landed the Truman administration in all of these messes accidentally, and if he really had been caught unawares by the Northern invasion then why would Truman have supported him for so long? And how could Acheson have stayed on in his post until 1953? The reason he stayed wasn't as simple as the people forgetting his so-called errors, but because he had the support of the President, since the President and Acheson were working on the same strategy together, and Truman couldn't envision such an implementation of this, the NSC-68 plan, without Acheson, one of its major architects. Robert T. Oliver was a former advisor to South Korean President Syngman Rhee, and he noted in his book that the United States virtually invited the North to attack because they had left the defences in South Korea so low. Virtually invited, indeed, is about as close as Washington did get. Since they couldn't very well ask Kim Il-sung to just do his thing, preparing the bait in South Korea was the next best thing. Yet Oliver, like so many other historians, fails to go all the way with this line of reasoning, likely because he wrote well before the classified materials had been released. You might be wondering, well, how old exactly is Robert T. Oliver's book? Well, as an account of the outbreak of war written in 1950, Oliver's is perhaps the most extreme case of a historian writing before the ink had settled on the pages of history, But Oliver's haste is understandable considering the rush within the American public to make sense of the war. Oliver, as someone in a position of authority, stood to benefit, economically, from the timely release of his book. Oliver's account provides us with a clear example of why one should wait for the sources to be released. Yet this figure from 1950, this book that he released in 1950, actually came a lot closer to grasping one of the fundamental truths of the Korean War than any of his peers would for the next five decades. With that said then, history friends, I'm going to end this very loaded episode here. I know we've been through the ringer with the sources and the debates today, but as we go further in our narrative, there will be plenty of other issues to sink our teeth into. Next time, we will delve properly into that event, when the North invaded and the world learned of the latest war to erupt in this volatile post-war world. To most of the world's population it was a surprise, but to a select few, I believe, and maybe you believe as well after listening to this episode, it wasn't too much of a surprise at all. For now though, I have been Zach. You've been wonderful for listening, especially if you are still listening and made it all the way through this episode, and I shall now take my leave. Thanks for listening history friends to episode 21 of the Korean War. It's been great having you. I hope you all have a great week, and I'll be seeing you all soon.